Proverbs chapter 20, and we're going to pick up today in verse 16. Proverbs 20, verse 16. It says, Take his garment, take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for foreigners hold him in pledge. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to man, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel. Prepare plans by consultation, and make war by wise guidance. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his ways? It is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vow, to make inquiry. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he, up, he upholds his throne by righteousness. The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Stripes that wounds scour away evil, and strokes reach the innermost parts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray, Lord, that you again help us to understand and, Lord, to bear this fruit in our life. Lord, this fruit of righteousness that is so clearly manifested for us in very practical ways throughout the book of Proverbs. Lord, that we would be able to uh, have our senses trained to distinguish between good and evil, that we might walk in the way of righteousness, and Lord, hate even the garment that is stained by the flesh. So be with us. Lord, help us, grow us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we'll pick up there in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for foreigners hold him in pledge. Here, we're dealing with a person or how to deal with someone who makes himself a surety or a pledge for a stranger, right? Though taking the garment of a poor man is forbidden by the Lord. You're not to take it in pledge against him or to hold it in a long time uh, as a pledge against him. This would be from Exodus 22, 25 to 27. Exodus 22, 25 to 27. When dealing in these financial matters, there is the desire to have surety or a pledge, to, which would be collateral. To have something that you hold in your possession that belongs to them, that is the surety or the guarantee that whatever they have borrowed from you, they're going to pay that back in due time. And in terms of a poor man, we're not to hold a collateral or a pledge in this way against them, but just to lend to them freely. And then if they're not able to pay back, then just to suffer that loss out of goodwill toward our fellow man and out of love of our neighbor. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. 
What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Here, in dealing with the poor man, they are not to treat him as a creditor. So you're not to lend to this poor man with the idea of exacting interest in getting gain from this. You should just do it out of charity, out of goodness, out of your own kindness to him. And if there is a pledge or a surety, in this case, his cloak, you're not to keep it until the sun sets because he needs something to sleep in. Otherwise, he's going to get cold at night. But here in this passage in verse 16 of Proverbs 20, we're not dealing with someone who is poor, but you're dealing with someone that you have financial dealings with who has himself been very loose and careless in his own dealings. He has made himself a pledge for a stranger, or he's given himself as a surety toward a foreigner. Someone that he doesn't know, he doesn't know if this person's trustworthy, he doesn't know if they're going to pay him back, but he has done this and put himself in financial jeopardy for the sake of a stranger or the sake of a foreigner. So if you yourself have to have dealings with this man, then you better get a surety and you better get a pledge. You better have something as collateral because this man likely isn't going to pay you back and you're going to yourself suffer financial ruin because of this man's poor financial dealings. So the person who makes himself a surety or a pledge for a stranger or a foreigner is himself a foolish person. And if you have to have interaction with him financially, then you better make sure you have your bases covered, that you yourself are not being exposed to his folly and his foolishness. Otherwise, the ruin that will come upon him is going to come upon you as well. So you better make sure that you have surety or a pledge when dealing with these kinds of people. So the Bible is not forbidding the taking or receiving of collateral or a surety or of, or of a pledge if you're dealing with someone who is careless, right? Who is himself very foolish in the way that he handles his money. Now, if a person is poor, but they're an honest poor man, then that's a different situation. But here we're dealing with someone who is loose in his financial dealings and is making himself a pledge or a surety for people that he has no business making himself a pledge for. Just with anyone who will come along, he will give himself in this way. So you must be very careful and cautious so that you yourself are not ruined and your family is not ruined because of this man's poor financial dealings. Verse 17, bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man. But afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel. Initially, bread, that's gained by falsehood. And here, falsehood is being used as a synonym for sin, right? Any type of gain that we have by sin, by which we're able to provide bread, uh, you know, the comforts of life, the various things that we need in life. And there are those who will earn their living by falsehood, or they'll earn their living through sinful ways. And when they obtain those things, initially... It is sweet to them, right? Because they have whatever they want. This is the fleeting pleasures of sin. They have bread in abundance. They have meat. They have a nice house. They have uh, comforts and pleasures in life. And they've gained these things through falsehood or through other types of sins. And it gives to them an instant gratification, right? It's sweet whenever they put it in their mouth. But ultimately, this bread obtained by falsehood will fill the mouth with gravel. And if you put gravel in your mouth and you're forced to chew on it, that is a very unpleasant, painful experience. So it is sweet for a moment, for an instant, but then it gives way to much pain and discomfort and displeasure. 
like gravel in the mouth. And this is when our sins are called to account. On the day of judgment when we stand before the Lord. Or if a person is doing this in this life and they're caught, right? If they're doing something sinfully, if they're selling drugs or, or doing some kind of shady business like that, and they're making a lot of money, and because of this, they're able to have a, a standard of living that they would not be able to have, well, that is sweet for a moment. But if they get caught and if they go to prison, then it becomes very bitter to them, right? Because it did not pay off in the end. But ultimately, on the day of judgment... Whenever we have to stand before the Lord, it will end in death if we obtain and practice these kinds of sins. Verse 18, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Right, in all things, we should prepare plans by consultation. Right, we should seek advice, seek counselors, seek experts in this field or that field, right, whether we're dealing with natural things or civil things, but especially in religious things, in spiritual things, we should seek counselors and make plans by those who are wise in their counsel, who can give to us good guidance. Right, make war by good guidance. If a king sets about and undertakes to go to war, but he has not consulted wise counselors as to whether or not he, with an army of 30,000, can go and defeat this one that has an army of 60,000. Well, if he's not able to defeat them, then he needs to come to terms of peace with them, do whatever it is. Otherwise, his army is going to be obliterated and his kingdom will be lost. But in order to do this, you have to depend upon other people. You are not, the king cannot make all these decisions on his own. Though he may be the one that has the final say, he needs to rely upon his counselors, his advisors, to inform him and to help him in these things. Actually, this is one of the, you ever uh, study history, uh, one of the reasons why Hitler had his downfall in World War II is because he, of his own arrogance and his hubris, in thinking that he was the greatest military uh, uh, strategy man in the history of the world, and he wasn't relying upon men who actually were proficient in those things, but was just relying upon his own counsel and his own wisdom. And this is why he made very foolish decisions, great blunders that ultimately cost him the war. Well, this is because he was not relying. Typically, people who are very arrogant, who have a form of hubris, they believe that they themselves are the fount of all wisdom and understanding and that they possess all this themselves. So why would they seek counsel from someone else? But we must have an understanding that we are insufficient, that we are lacking, that we are not the fount of all wisdom, but we need help from other people. Who can say that they are proficient in understanding on every single area of life? Right? Well, a person may spend their whole life to master one single area of life, but they're not proficient in everything. But typically, what do all people think? That they are the master of all things. That they understand everything about every single issue of life. And this is because of their own arrogance. We must have humility and be willing to admit that we don't know everything. Therefore, we need to rely upon others and depend upon others and gain wisdom and understanding from outside sources who can help us make wise plans and make good decisions. Now, ultimately, this must be the Lord and it must be the word of God, right? That's who we need to go to for true wisdom and those who are going to help us understand what the Bible says and then consult and, and have counselors in all of these things. Again, whether we're dealing with 
the issues of life, the decisions that we need to make uh, in terms of our own life or in spiritual matters, in terms of doctrine and understanding, right? Shouldn't we be consulting? What did others think about this, right? How did other pastors and other theologians in past times, how were they interpreting these issues, right? Like what we were doing today in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Are we to depend upon our own mind in this? Should we not consult the rest of the scriptures to see what does the Bible have to say about this? But then even go and look, what do other credible, reputable pastors and theologians from the past, what did they say about this topic, right? What did they say about this passage? How were they interpreting it? And if I'm on one side and everyone else is on the other, then likely something may be amiss with me, right? And I may need to reevaluate what I'm thinking and what I'm understanding. This is what we constantly need to be doing right, in terms of doctrine, in terms of life, in terms of decisions, whatever it is, relying upon those that are living in with us and relying on those who are dead and gone but that we have access to, but ultimately, primarily relying upon the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches us in terms of understanding. Verse 19, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Right, A slanderer reveals secrets, things that are told in confidence that are not the business of any other person. Right? There are certain things in your life and my life that are not, they don't need to be shared publicly, but they may need to be shared privately. I may need counsel in something, and if I go to someone and I reveal these secrets that are personal and private, and they don't need to be distributed to the whole world. Well, if there's a counselor like that, that counselor should hold these things in confidence, in private. They should only be revealed to the extent that they need to be revealed. Now, if I go to the counselor and tell him, you know, I've been struggling with being a serial killer for the last 10 years, and I've got 10 dead bodies in my backyard, that is not something that needs to be held in confidence. He should immediately call the police and tell them, because this is a matter of crime, and it needs to be exposed, and it needs to be dealt with according to the law. But there are other matters that should stay between the two of us and are not to be revealed to, to many people. Even some professions, like the law profession, we have Bruce here, or counselors, right? There's confidentiality that is a part of that profession. There needs to be confidence and trust that the one who is receiving counsel can be open and honest with the person they're talking to without the threat that they're going to go and tell other people and expose it, and then it lead to ramifications for this person. Well, this needs to be true in the body of Christ as well. Whenever we are talking and revealing things to one another, we should reveal them only to the extent that they need to be revealed. But if there's someone who is a slanderer, you reveal things to them, and then what do they do? They go around and they tell other people about them. And here, it's not necessarily that they're revealing things that are lies about them, but they're revealing things that were told in confidence, things that were secrets. Things that were secrets that they told them in confidence, but then they go and tell it to other people who have no business knowing. And they're not telling them in order to actually help the situation. Why does the slanderer reveal secrets? They get delight in it, right? They love talking about people. They love talking about people behind their back. They love revealing secrets in these ways. And they're not doing it out of love of truth and righteousness and love of neighbor, but just because they delight in this kind of sordid gossip and going around and talking about people all the time. Well, we shouldn't be like that. And if we know that there's someone that has that proclivity, 
then don't tell them anything, right? Why would you reveal your secrets to a blabbermouth who you know is going to go and tell everyone, right? You shouldn't do these kinds of things. And that's why it's saying don't associate with the gossip. If you know this person's a gossip, then don't tell them anything. Because if you tell them, who else are you telling? The whole world, right? The whole world's going to know. And if you want the whole world to know, you might as well just tell the whole world instead of telling this person in confidence only to later find out that the whole world knows. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 16. It says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So don't go about as a slanderer and act against the life of your neighbor. Slander, gossip is to murder, it's to kill the good name or the good reputation of our neighbor. And this we should not do. So instead, we should know how to listen and how to hold things in confidence that should be kept in confidence. We have to have the ability to discern and judge what needs to be held in confidence and to the extent of which these things need to be known, and then stop at that. Stop at that and don't tell the whole world in that way. Okay, next, verse 20. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. In Exodus 20, verse 12, the first commandment in dealing with the second table of the law, which are the commandments teaching us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, the first of those commandments is to honor your father and your mother, right? That your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. We are to honor our father and our mother. Well, the opposite of honoring them is cursing them, right? In the one who curses his father and his mother, this person is such a reprobate that here the Bible promises that his lamp will go out in time of darkness, meaning he's going to go to hell. If he doesn't repent of this sin, then he's going to go to hell. His lamp will go out, his lamp being his light, his soul. His soul will be taken and it will be cast into the lake of fire if he does not repent of this sin cursing his father and mother. And this cursing is unjust. It is an unrighteous cursing of them. There is a place for there to be a righteous cursing, but it should not be that a son is cursing his father and his mother. Even if his father and mother may be worthless in some regards, he still has an obligation and duty before the law of God to honor them as much as he can. As far as it is possible, he should honor them and love them and care for them to the best of his ability. And even if they are worthless in some regards, in other regards, they're not. They at least gave him life, right? He came into the world because of them. And likely, even the worst of parents do provide some benefits they feed the children, right? They get them at least to adulthood, whatever it is. They provide some benefit. So the children should be grateful for that. And instead of cursing them, should honor them as much as they possibly can. And a person who fails to do so is void of love, right? Void of love and revealing the depravity of his own heart and mind because it is natural and common for children to honor their father and mother. This is part of natural law. And even many idolaters, pagans, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, even they know to honor their father and mother, though they belong to a false religion. 
they know that it's good and right to honor their father and mother. And many of them, when their parents are aged, will take care of them, will provide for them, will move them into their own house and meet all of their needs. They do this, even in foreign countries, even in idolatrous countries. Then how much more in the Christian church should we know to honor our father and our mother and to love them and to care for them and not to curse them? We should know these things. They're self-evident, both by natural law, but also by the word of God. And so we ought to be proficient in honoring our parents. 21, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. An inheritance gained hurriedly. Now, generally speaking, an inheritance gained in a hasty way is a sinful way. That's what it means. Hurriedly is being used here as a synonym for sinfully. Because typically, the sinful way of gaining wealth is the quick way of gaining wealth. The person who sells drugs sells those drugs. We're really hooked on drug dealers today, but they're being used as a good example. They make money quickly. They don't do it by gradually building up, by going to work day in and day out. They only work a couple of hours a day, usually at night. They sleep all day, and then they're up for a couple of hours at night. They sell their drugs on the street, and they make a lot of money doing so. And so they're able to gain wealth in a very quick way, in a very rapid way, a hasty way. Right? This is how they gain it. However, the common way to gain wealth is through hard work, and it takes time, it takes endurance, it takes a lifetime to build up an estate and to build up wealth in that way. Well, the one who gains it in a sinful way, a rash way at the beginning, he's not going to be blessed in the end. In the end, money gained in this way or wealth gained in this way, it does not have the blessing of God. Even if this person maintains his wealth throughout the course of his life, he still does not have the blessing of God. And then many times when people gain it this way, as quickly as it is gained, what else happens? It just as quickly it is lost, right? It is taken away. Whereas when it's gained in an honest way, through hard work and diligence over the course of a lifetime, then it has the blessing of the Lord, and also it is not gained in illegal ways, and it's safe and secure you know, in some regard. Though the government, they want to get their sticky fingers on all of it, okay? So in that way, it may be lost, but you still have the blessing and the honor of the Lord. Verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Here, personal vengeance. Taking matters into your own hands. Right? Whenever someone sins against us, whenever they commit evil against us, the flesh rises up, and what does the flesh want to do? It wants revenge. It wants to exact vengeance against this person. It wants to repay evil for evil. They committed evil against me, then I'm going to commit evil against them. Right? They threw mud at me, I'm going to throw mud at them. They slapped my child in the face, I'm going to slap their child in the face. These are the things that people want to do. Repay evil for evil. But the Bible tells us, don't say that. Right? Don't even let it come out of your mouth. Even though that's what you want to do, even though that desire is there, where do we have to recognize that this desire comes from? The desire is coming from the flesh, right? It's not good. It's not a righteous desire. It is an evil desire, right? The desire for vengeance or for the justice of God, right? That is a good desire, but it needs to be left to who? 
We have to leave it to the Lord. We have to have that with faith, with trust, with patience, and trust that God will be the one who will grant vengeance to his people in his time. And that's why he says here, wait for the Lord. He will save you. Yes, this person has committed evil against you, and you have no recourse to get justice. Now here, when it says, wait for the Lord, he will save you, he doesn't mean that if someone is trying to burn your house down, that you can't call the police because you just have to wait for the Lord to save you. That's ignorance. That's very foolish. That would be like the one who is waiting for the Lord to feed them, and he doesn't get up and go to work. What is the means God has provide, given to us by which we provide for our own needs and the needs of our family? You get up and you go to work. This is the common means. And the common means in this present world to ward off evil is the proper authorities. God has given the ruling authorities the power of the sword to be a uh, ward against evil, to punish evil and to reward good. And if using the law using the authorities, using the police, the courts, we can gain justice and we can get vengeance in that way when people commit evil against us, then this is good and fine. It's proper because this has been established by God. However, because we live in a fallen world, many times those who are charged with rewarding the righteous and punishing the evil are themselves evil people. And instead of rewarding the righteous, they punish the righteous. And instead of punishing the evil, they reward the evil. And there's no outlet for us to seek justice. And at that point, what are we to do? We commit it to the Lord. We wait for the Lord, and he will ultimately save us. He will do it. Who could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who could they appeal to? To give them justice against the wrath of the king. There was no one to appeal to. Only who? Only the Lord. Only he could deliver them because the one who is charged with protecting the innocent is the very one who is persecuting them and tormenting them. And we cannot repay evil for evil. We just have to trust in the Lord and know that in due time, God will bring all things to light and every evil will be punished. And those who are innocent, they will be vindicated. God will vindicate his people. Romans chapter 12 Romans 12, 14 to 21. 14 to 21 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He is the one who will repay. In this way, God has called us, in some regards, in some of his attributes, we are to be imitators of the Lord. We are to love in the same way that God loves. Right? God does good to his enemies, so what should we do? We also should do good to our enemies. We should love those who hate us. We should pray for those who persecute us. But in some regards, 
there are areas where God acts unilaterally, where we are not called to practice in this world what God is practicing. And one of those is in terms of personal vengeance. We are not to take up the cause of personal vengeance and go after those, but rather we have to leave it to God. And God is a God of vengeance. I mean, vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will repay. But he does not call us to repay as he repays. He does not call us to get vengeance as he gets vengeance, but rather to wait for the Lord, and he will deliver us, and he will save us in due time. It is to test our faith, to try us, to see if we will be patient, and if we will continue to cry out to God and to pray to him. And the best example of this is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when he was falsely accused, and whenever he was mistreated, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. First Peter chapter 2. Right? In some regards, we, we can be innocent, and we can have evil committed against us. And that certainly can be true in this present world. That in a matter, we may be innocent, and what people are doing to us, we don't deserve. But in another sense, can any of us say that we're ever completely innocent? And no matter what happens, we don't deserve it? No, we can't say that. Right? Even if we die, we can't say, well, we don't deserve it. No, we, anything that we get above hell is grace from God Amen. and is more than we deserve. Even if we have life and we have a persecutor who's treating us bad, that's more than we deserve. Who is the only person who was perfectly innocent? Only our Lord Jesus Christ. And when evil was committed against him, he did not retaliate, but he entrusted himself to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He suffered, but he uttered no threats, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And this is because he walked by the Spirit. And insofar as we walk by the Spirit, this is how we should behave as well when we are reviled, when we are persecuted, and when there is no recourse for us to get justice on this earth. We must wait for the Lord and wait for God to grant vengeance to his people, and he will do it in due time. God will deliver his people from all evil, right? From all persecutors. He will deliver them, but it may not be immediately. We may have to wait, but in time, God will surely do it. Verse 23. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. Here again, this is one of many Proverbs dealing with honesty in terms of our financial dealings with others, that we should be honest and fair in the way that we deal with others and not using deception to gain an advantage for our own personal well-being or for our own uh, enrichment. We need to be honest in our dealings with others. And those who use dishonest scales, right, false scales, differing weights, this is something that is abominable 
to God, right? Because you're cheating your fellow man, right? You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Also, it reveals that this person has no fear of the Lord and they don't understand who God is. Because if the person they're swindling knew they were using differing weights, there would be a problem, right? They do this in secret, but who can they not hide from? They can't hide from God. They're doing it in God's sight, in his very presence. He sees everything that they're doing, yet they live as if God doesn't see it and that God's not going to hold them to account on the day of judgment. In Proverbs 11.1, 1, it says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Justice, righteousness, honesty, integrity. Right? This is the way that we should be in our dealings with our fellow man, in all things, but especially in our financial dealings. 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Here, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. Every single step of your life, everything that will happen to you from the day of your birth till the day of your death, every minute of every day, every second of every day has been ordained by the Lord. God knows all things, and there's not a hair that falls from your head to the ground apart from the will of your Father who is in heaven. Your whole life has been ordained by God. In Him we live, we move, and we have our being, it says in Acts 17, 22 to 31. So then, God has ordained it, and then how can man understand His way? Do we know what God has ordained for us in the future? We don't know everything that God has ordained. We all assume that tomorrow we'll get up and we'll have another day of life. But it may be that God has ordained to take our life today and that this is the last day that we will live. Or we all assume that we'll be here next year at this time. But we don't know that. We don't know what God has ordained. We all assume that we have health today, we'll have health tomorrow. We have prosperity today, we'll have prosperity tomorrow. That everything's going to continue as it is, yet we don't know how quickly things can change. But who has ordained all of our steps? The Lord has, right? And we cannot understand His ways perfectly. Now, we can understand His ways insofar as He's revealed things to us. And whatever He's revealed to us, this we should do. And we should do the best that we can in terms of planning and uh, our own life and making decisions in our life. But ultimately, we have to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and we will do that. We have to concede and grant that our life is in His hands and whatever God ordains for us is what He pleases to do and what is for our good and for His glory. Do we want to have good health? Well, of course we do. Does anyone want to get cancer? No, no one wants that. But can we control it? No, we can't control it. Does everyone want to live a long life and get to old age and die peacefully surrounded by all their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Of course they do, right? We all want that. But can we control it? No. We can pray for it. We can pray that God would give us that blessing and that honor. But ultimately, we have to submit our life to him, to his plans and whatever he has ordained. We can't control our own life. That's the problem, right? This is the problem so many people have. We want control, but only God can control. And this is why we can't even understand his ways, right? We can't understand what it is that God has ordained for us next year, next day, next year, 20 years, 30 years down the line, even if we have that much time. 
So we need to learn to be humble and resign our life to the plans of the Lord and whatever God has ordained and then not to uh, kick against the goats. James 4.13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life is, what it will be tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live also and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. If the Lord wills, we will do this. We will live and we will do this and we will do that. That's the right attitude that we should have. And not boast and have confidence in all of our own plans that we have for our own life. As if we can map it out perfectly according to our own will, apart from what God has ordained. We must resign our life into the hands of the Lord. And who better to have control of our life? We don't want control of our own life, right? We want God to have control of our life, right? And God knows what is best for us. 25, it is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy. And after the vow to make inquiry, right? To say rashly, it is holy. To dedicate something to the Lord, to give it voluntarily to him. We're not talking about what is required of the Lord, right? There are certain things that God requires of us. Well, he requires our entire life, that our whole life is to be offered in terms of worship and service to the Lord. But then in terms of our gifts, there are some things that are obligatory. This would be our tithes and offerings. We don't have a right to say that uh, the tithe or the 10% uh, belongs to me. And only if I dedicate it to the Lord do I have to give it to the Lord. No, God requires that of us, that we are to give in this way. But then there are other times where we give voluntarily, where we may give above and beyond what God requires. And when we do that, it's up to us. Right? It's up to the person to make this decision and to dedicate something to the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. The one who says it is holy, he has something and he dedicates it to the Lord. He gives it to the Lord and offers it into his service. He sanctifies it for this holy purpose or for this holy reason. He's taking it from common use and then setting apart for the sacred use, right? For the use of the Lord for this holy purpose. He says it rashly and then after he makes the vow, then he thinks about it. And he thinks, you know, I just dedicated that I would give 90% of my income to the Lord. And that means I'm going to have to live off of 10% of it. And am I going to be able to make my mortgage payments? Am I going to be able to provide for my family, for my children, all the things that are necessary on 10% of my income? And he looks at it and he goes, I can't do this. But now he's already made this vow. He's already rashly said this, foolishly said this. And now he's going to have to break his vow. Or that's what he's going to want to do. He's going to want to break his vow. when he's done this rashly. That's why it's a trap. Now he's sinned against God with his mouth because the very thing he vowed to do, he thinks about it. He makes inquiry about it. He thinks about the ramifications of this for his life. And now he wants to take it back. He wants to uh, go back on his word that he's made to the Lord. And that is a trap to do this in a rash way. And did he have to do it? It was voluntary. No one's forcing him or compelling him to do this. He does it voluntarily. So we need to be thoughtful and considerate 
And if we want to dedicate something to the Lord, then that's good, right? It's good and great for someone to do that above and beyond what is expected of them. But if we're going to do that, we need to think about it carefully. We need to look at our situation and make sure that we're able to do it. And then we need to follow through with it and actually do what we've promised to do. And the one who does that will receive the blessing from God. But the one who just is willy-nilly with his mouth makes these rash commitments to the Lord, then thinks about it and realizes how difficult it's going to be, well, then it's a trap for them. They're sinning with their mouth, and they shouldn't be doing these things. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us that we should be very careful in what we utter or say before the Lord, so that we're not sinning with our mouth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 to 7. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delights in in fools, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. You do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So, pay what you vow. If you make a vow to God, then pay what you vow. Don't say it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I didn't think through it. Right? And this goes in all things. If we're dedicating something, when we get married, we make a vow before the Lord. Well, you better think about that. You sure you want to be married to this woman the rest of your life? You sure you want to be married to this man the rest of your life? You should think about that before you actually make the vow and not after the marriage. Because afterwards, it's too late. You've already said, I do. You're already on the hook, and now you can't go back on it. Or if you do, you're going to commit an even greater sin against God, and it's going to lead you into more sin and condemnation. 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. A wise king, a righteous king, a good king, he winnows the wicked. He has his winnowing fork, and he's able to make a separation between good counselors, righteous counselors, and wicked ones, foolish ones, that are going to be no benefit at all. He's able to make a distinction in his kingdom between righteous people, those who are law-abiding citizens, and those who are law-breakers. He winnows them, he separates the wicked, and then what does he do to them? He drives the threshing wheel over them, right? He executes them. He punishes them because of their evil. And so he purges his land from this evil that is there. And when evil is purged from the land, there's more righteousness. There's more goodness. There's more justice. There's more peace. There's more prosperity. It's a benefit for everyone, right? To live under this kind of rule in this kind of kingdom. Now, ultimately, who is this true of? Well, it has to be true of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ultimate wise king. And is it not true that Jesus will winnow the wicked? He will separate the sheep from the goats. Actually, in Matthew 3.16, it says his winnowing fork is in his hand. He winnows, he has his winnowing fork in order to separate the righteous from the wicked. The righteous he will gather into his barn, but the wicked he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is what he will do. Psalm 101 speaks of this ministry of Christ as king. 
of winnowing the wicked and driving his threshing cart over them. Psalm 101, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all of those who do iniquity. There, here, he looks to the faithful. The blameless one will be with him, will minister to him, but the one who practices deceit and falsehood, he's going to destroy them. Every morning he will purge the city of the Lord. Verse 27, the spirit of the man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Here, the spirit of the man is the rational soul of the man, right? We know that we consist of two parts. There is the physical component, which is our body, and then there is the spiritual or the invisible component, which is the soul of man, Right? We exist in, in these two capacities as people or as human beings. We know that God formed the body of Adam out of the dust or out of the ground, and then he breathed into him the breath of life. He gave to him a soul, right? a spiritual component, as well as the physical component. Well, the spirit of the man is the light from the Lord. This is the lamp of the Lord that is in the man. Who gave the spirit to man? Who gives to him life, breath, and all things? It all comes from the Lord. It is the Lord. It is his light that is there. And in some regards, even in our fallen state, the lamp of the Lord, this light, remains there upon the soul of men so that this light is not completely extinguished in this present world. Right? The light of nature comes from the Lord, and this resides in the soul of man. And it is by this light that a man can look and reflect upon his innermost thoughts of both his heart and his mind and make some judgment and discernment between good and evil. And this is why Gentiles, even though they don't have the law, which is another source of light, they are able still to do what the law requires. And where does this knowledge or this light come from? Well, it's written on their heart, right? It comes from this lamp of the Lord that has been placed in the heart of man, in the soul of man, that though it has been marred and though sin has influenced man, it has not so completely extinguished this understanding that he has no ability to discern between good and evil. Now, of course, this lamp that remains in man will never lead to salvation. No one using the light of nature, using his own conscience, will ever come to a saving knowledge of the truth. What is required for a man to come to a saving knowledge of the truth? There has to be the preaching of the word of God. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The preaching of the word accompanied with the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit of God. However, this lamp does enable Gentiles 
to in some regard make a distinction between good and evil, and it will bring condemnation upon them because they do know in some regard that there is good and evil, and they still commit evil sins against God. Romans 2, 14 to 16. Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. They don't have the law, but they are doing the things that the law requires. And where is this found? Well, it's in their conscience. It's in their heart. It's written on the heart of men. And this is because the spirit of the man is the lamp from the Lord. And even in the sinful state, it still maintains some light, some understanding, so that people are not completely plunged into every gross evil imaginable. 28. Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. Here, another aspect of a righteous king or righteous rulers, loyalty, truth, and righteousness. These are the things that establish a kingdom or a, a country, a nation. Whenever their laws and whenever their rulers are based upon loyalty, truth, and righteousness, then there is prosperity, there's peace, there's happiness, there's civility. It is a place where people will want to live. And insofar as the laws of the land conform to the righteousness and to the truth revealed in the word of God, then there will be, it'll be a better place to live than in a place where it's the opposite of that, right? Where evil is good and good is evil. Now, again, even in the best of nations or the best of kingdoms, these things will only be known in part and they will ebb and flow. At some points in time, there will be more loyalty, more truth, more righteousness, and there will be more prosperity and thriving in that kingdom. And then another king comes along, and there's less loyalty and truth and less righteousness, and it's to the detriment of the people, and then they suffer, and there's many hardships and uh, torments that they experience as a result of those things. But even in the best of kingdoms in this world, these things will never be known perfectly. We should never put our hope in the kingdom of man in the kingdoms of this world, because we'll always be disappointed. Even the best of rulers will ultimately fail in one way or another. And if we read the history of Israel, even their righteous kings that were much better than the bad ones, right? So we can say that David was a better king and ruler than Ahab, much better than him. Solomon, right, was better than uh, Manasseh. There were many of them who were better than others, but even David and Solomon and Hezekiah, even they had their failings. Even they had their weaknesses. And in some regards, they were not promoting loyalty and truth and righteousness. However, there is a king who will always promote these things and whose kingdom is built upon these in perfect righteousness. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, it speaks of his kingdom being upheld by truth and righteousness and justice. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is what he will do. And we ought to look to his kingdom, right? His kingdom that will come to this world, right? In due time when our Lord and Savior returns, that's where our hope should be found. It ought to reside in none other than him. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Here, again, the glory of the young men is their strength. Young men, though lacking in wisdom, do provide a benefit in that they're very strong, right? They're able to do stuff. They can pick things up, right, that older men are not able to do so. Older men, though they don't have strength anymore, they have great benefit, and though they have wisdom and counsel and understanding, they've lived a life, and they are a benefit to the church because of these things. So neither the young men nor the old men should be despised. The young men have their strength, and so they are a benefit and very useful to the old. And then the old men have their wisdom and are a benefit and very useful to the young. The old need the young, and the young need the old. The old need the young to carry the chairs and put them in the trailer, and the uh, young need the old to tell them what they ought to do, right? How they ought to live, the decisions that they ought to make in life, and how to live a godly and a righteous life. And in both cases, everyone is a benefit and useful in the season that God has given to them, right? And this is the kindness of God in the way that he has ordained our life. That whatever season we are in, there is usefulness that we provide to other people. Even when we're young and inexperienced, we have a strong back. And so we can be a benefit and a help to others who are in need. And then when we are older and we're not able to do the things that we could in our youthfulness, we have wisdom, we have understanding, we have a lifetime of experience that is an invaluable source of wisdom to other people. And then we're able to help in those ways. And everyone ought to be benefiting in whatever capacity, in whatever way that they can. And no one should be despised for their youthfulness, nor should they be despised for their agedness. But rather, we ought to hold everyone in the church in high regard, in high regard and love each other as brothers and see the the benefit and usefulness of one to the other. Then verse 30, stripes that wound scour away evil and strokes reach the innermost parts. Here, this is true in a civil matter. Just punishments, though they cannot change the heart of men, it can alter behavior and restrain evil so that the evil that men want to commit, they don't commit because they don't want to get a good beating, right? They don't want to get stripes and they don't want to receive strokes. So though the man may be tempted to commit theft, because he knows if he gets caught, He's going to get a good thrashing. It restrains him from doing what is there in his heart and what he might want to do if, say, there was a city and they made it a misdemeanor to commit uh, shoplifting. You know, if it's under $1,000 and they said, you know what, under $1,000, no problem, it's a misdemeanor and it's a slap on the wrist. Well, what's going to happen in a city like that? It's going to be crazy. All the shops are going to close down. Nordstrom, they're leaving San Francisco. They're getting out of there because they can't stay in business. People keep shoplifting, right? It's insanity to do this. What needs to happen to those shoplifters? Well, it says it right here. Stripes and strokes. 
That's what they need, a good beating, and then they won't do it anymore. Though they would want to do it, though it's there in their hearts, and if they're not regenerated and converted, it will remain in their hearts all of their days. Even in the believer, because we still have the flesh, there still is a component of those things that remains in us, yet stripes and strokes keep us from doing the things that we have an inclination to do. This is how you manage a household with children, right? You have to have proper punishment and discipline to keep them from putting their finger in the light socket, from touching the stove, from not cleaning their room, you know, doing the things that kids naturally want to do. This is the way it works in the world, in the home, in society, wherever. But ultimately, this is true in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense, it is true that evil is taken away from the innermost part through stripes and strokes. But not our stripes and strokes, but whose? Through those of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it is by his wounds that we are delivered, that we are saved, we are purified. Our evil is taken away from the innermost part because he changes us from the very core of who we are, from the very heart of our being, and what is the basis of our being healed from all of the diseases of sin. It is by his wounds that we have our healing. This is as we sang this morning, and we heard read from Isaiah chapter 53. That is, his wounds that bring about our healing. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So it was by his scourging that we receive our healing and that we are purged from evil in the innermost part of our being. And if this is what Christ has done for us, then everyone who names the name of the Lord, let him depart from iniquity. We should want to live a godly life Because when we see what was necessary to be done to Christ because of our sin, it should cause us to hate our sin and to want to walk in newness of life. And that's what we should strive for today. Today, this week, every day of our life, to walk with him in uprightness. But then to know as well that when we sin, and sin we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that our standing before God, though we want to live a godly life and we should strive to live a godly life, our standing before God is never based upon even our own practical godliness. But it's always based upon who? Upon our Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness is the basis for our acceptance before God. And that is our hope, our comfort, our joy in this life. That's what gives us consolation in knowing that we will never be condemned because it's not based upon us. It's based upon what Christ has done for us. And if that doesn't cause us to want to live a godly life, then what, what else will, right? What else will? So let us then strive for that and strive to live a life of righteousness. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, just as we have seen 
the strokes and the stripes are able to deliver a man from sin, from the innermost part of his being. And Lord, we know that this certainly is true of us. It is by his wounds that we have been healed. The stroke that was due to us because of our sin, we sinned against you. We violated your law. Your justice was crying out for vengeance against us because of all the sins that we had committed. And vengeance was satisfied. You did not deny your vengeance or your wrath. You did not violate your own standard of justice and righteousness. But you have gotten vengeance against our sins. But we know that you have done that, Lord, not in us, but in a substitute, a sacrifice, one who has come, who has taken our place, and who has been executed on our behalf. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world, that he took on a nature like ours, and that every single area of our life that was touched by sin, he assumed this into his own person, and he died on the cross in order to heal us of all of our diseases of sin, to purify us from all unrighteousness, and that your wrath was satisfied when you poured it out upon him there on the cross. And all of the strokes and all of the stripes that he received, that he did so on our behalf, showing us, Lord, how much you love us, how gracious and kind you are to such undeserving, worthless sinners. But Lord, as we think and meditate about these things and reflect upon them, may it also make us detest and hate sin seeing that it was our sin that brought such misery upon our Lord and Savior, that caused him to suffer so much there on the cross. How could we love those things that brought such affliction to him? So, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to just to hate sin, for it to be revolting to us to detest it, Lord, and to detest our own self. Lord, seeing that we still have this flesh and that it is a part of who we are and that we still commit sins against you. So, Lord, we, may we be broken over these things. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us a poor spirit, Lord, that we would truly have poverty of spirit and be humbled before you over the nature of our sin and all the things that we have done. And Lord, we ask that you continue to be merciful and gracious to us on the basis of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, we would always remember that our standing before you is based upon his person and his work and what he has done for us. And that the only reason we are accepted by you and the only reason we will be accepted into your company for all eternity is because we have such an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous, this mediator who stands between God and man and who reconciles us together. So, Father, we thank you for this, and may we go from here today, Lord, spreading these good tidings of great joy to anyone who will listen, teaching men how it is that you are reconciling the world 
through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would add to our number and that, Lord, you might build up this church and continue to prosper us. Lord, both that you would add more people, but also that you would add to the godliness and to the maturity of those who are here and that you might bring us to complete manhood, Lord, according to your will. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.